I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. So there's a trade fight happening between Canada and China that you may not have heard about, and it is making couches, yes, couches, more expensive. As the CBC's Pete Evans first reported this week, Canada has imposed tariffs on imports of upholstered furniture coming from China and Vietnam. The tariffs start at 17%, but go as high as 295%, meaning the cost of some imported couches or chairs has quadrupled. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I turned this one over. I asked Sean what he thought of the decision to impose tariffs on these specific imports, making them more expensive for Canadian consumers. Such a complicated question because, I mean, on one hand, you know, there's an impetus to support retailers and to support consumers and tariffs on Chinese goods, you know, has the potential to harm um, both parties. But if there's one thing we've learned over the past 10 or 15 years is that unfair trade practices by China have harmed Canadian manufacturers, Canadian workers, um, you know, in a significant way, what's sometimes referred to Alicia as the China shock, uh, which has had a, a meaningful impact on, say, manufacturing employment in the country. So, you know, the government is sort of damned if it do, does and damned if it doesn't. And, you know, there's going to be critics of this decision. But I do think on balance, we need to take a kind of stronger position vis-a-vis Chinese trade practices and recognize that that may come with some costs to retailers and consumers. In fact, if I have one criticism of the government, it's not the choice that they've made here, but that they've sort of done it as a one-off in a particular field of manufacturing. I think the prime minister needs to come out and kind of communicate a strategy um, vis-a-vis Chinese trade practices and kind of reason with Canadians that this may have some short-term costs, but that it has kind of long-term strategic um, uh, relevance uh, for Canada's economy as a whole. And we're all going to have to, you know, that may mean that some of us have sacrifices, but on balance, it's the, the right and, and necessary thing to do. So you would like to see this kind of protectionist trade policy applied to not just upholstered furniture imports, but, but more broadly different aspects of the economy that have been impacted by the flood of products, mostly from China. Yeah, and, and communicated as an overall strategy. Like the problem with this story is, you know, most Canadians don't even know about it, right? Um, it's, it's affecting a kind of concentrated part of the economy, and, and it looks like a kind of one-off, whereas I think um, China has engaged in unfair trade practices that have harmed Canada's economy for, you know, well over a decade, and we need a, a kind of proportionate strategy um, that doesn't just deal with couches, Um as a, as, a, as a single issue, but deals kind of comprehensively on trying to rebalance an asymmetry in our, in our trading relationship. So I guess in some, you know, I have no objections to this particular idea or proposal. If anything, I think we need to um, be more systematic about the way we're responding to um, unfair uh, Chinese trade practices. Is getting the consumer 
buy-in though the biggest challenge here because tariffs do impact consumers and retailers that that's who feels it in the short term yeah but i think and I, the way to do that of course is that canadian consumers are also canadian workers um and so i think you know we need to communicate um and this is why i think this can't be done as a sort of one-off it needs to be part of an overall strategy where you're communicating Canadians. There may be some short-term costs as consumers, but it's part of an overall strategy to support um, you know, Canada's economy. And I would just say, I know we're almost out of time, but I, I would just say the other piece of the puzzle, Alicia, is that this needs to be done in concert with the United States. You know, I think the Biden administration is focused like a laser on trying to rebalance its trade relationship with China. Um, you know, I think we need to think about this as a kind of continental strategy. Um, and so, yeah, if there's any criticism for me here, it's just that it's too small, too narrow, unfocused. We really do need an overall China strategy, and we needed it yesterday. So as Sean mentioned, we were running out of time during the live stream show when it came to this topic. And there was so much more to say, not just about this small fight, but Canada's trading relationship with China. So after we wrapped up the live stream show, we decided to dig a little deeper into it. I asked Sean about how the world's relationship with China has shifted in recent years. Wasn't that long ago, Alicia, that Canada and other G7 and Western economies were um, moving to have China join the WTO, the, the World Trade Organization. The presumption was that an expansion of trade and investment flows between our countries and China would not only be good for our economies, but that it would ultimately lead to political liberalization and you know a trend towards democratization in China. I think it's fair to say at this stage, you know, virtually nobody thinks that, that not only has it not made any progress towards liberalization and democratization, one might argue that things are moving in the opposite direction, but I think we have a much clearer sense of the economic costs on different sectors, different regions, and different workers of greater trade exposure to China, not just because of its low-cost manufacturing capacity, but also particular trade strategies, including um, currency manipulation, dumping, even instances of intellectual property theft and corporate espionage. And so, you know, it's it's just extraordinary what a sea change we've observed in the way that policymakers and, and policy scholars think about the West's uh, economic relationship with China. Um, you know, the Trump administration started to impose tariffs on China in a number of of sectors. Um, the Biden administration, I think, has the role of tariffs, at least in the short term, but it's maintained a kind of hawkishness vis-a-vis -vis China that uh, diverges from, say, American policy under George W. Bush or even um, under the Obama administration. I think the fact that we've seen a degree of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is a real sign, I think, of this paradigmatic shift in the way the West thinks about its relationship with China. So. You know, I think the Canadian government has been slower to move in this direction than some others. And, you know, one can sort of speculate what that's about. But um, this new set of tariffs on incoming uh, furniture exports from China, I think, is a reflection of adjustments in the way that the Canadian government is going to treat our economic relationship with China. And I would just say, um, as, as a free trader, I, I, I think that's justified, that we do need to kind of look at China with a realist, realist 
set of eyes and sort of rethink the benefits and costs of open and kind of liberal trade with the country. It's hard to believe that just a few years ago, the Trudeau government was pursuing free trade agreement with China. Things have changed so much in in just a few years. But how do you, as we talk about this free trade, how do you unwind the kind of decades of, you know, Canadian companies and companies around the world investing in China and taking advantage of the uh, low cost labor and, and various things like we do now rely very heavily on China? It's, it's a fascinating question. Because of the degree of economic integration with China that's uh, occurred over the past, you know, 20 years or so, um, there are going to be limits on our ability to kind of disengage. You know, this is the reason why, Alicia, that characterizations of the West relationship with China today as a Cold War don't quite work. We're far more integrated with China today than we ever were with the Soviet Union. I mean, from a supply chains perspective, from a trade and investment flow perspective, even the number of international students from China in Canada, and in a way that, you know, completely differs from the West relationship to Soviet Union in the context of the, the 20th century Cold War. So, uh, you know, your, your point is spot on that this isn't going to be a kind of full decoupling as some people sometimes characterize it. It's going to be much more targeted, sector specific. I think what you're going to see is jurisdictions like the United States and Canada try to restore certain kind of strategic capacities, you know, that they don't want um, to be dependent on China for um, but that's not going to involve a kind of full withdrawal of the kind of path towards integration that's occurred over over the past 20 years. And I would just say one final thing here. It's crucial that this undertaken um, amongst a, a, a group of allied countries with um, kind of shared values, shared interests. You know, the idea as kind of romantic and appealing as it may be that Canada is going to stand up and, you know, sort of fight against Chinese um, practices or even Chinese um, totalitarianism, you know, I think overstates our ability to influence Chinese behavior and Chinese kind of governance. I think, you know, what you're going to see is arrangements like what sometimes referred to, um, Alicia, as an economic NATO. So, you know, your, your listeners will be familiar with NATO, the idea that we have a military alliance with um, like-minded countries. And the idea is that an attack on any NATO member is an attack on all NATO members as a sort of deterrence tool. There's been a, arguments made for something like that in the economic realm. So that when China targets a different jurisdiction like Canada with, you know, tariffs and other protectionist measures or dumping or whatever it may be, that partner jurisdictions kind of collectively respond and that that would have a, a far like far greater likelihood of of inducing behavioral change in China. I think all of these issues need to be on the table as we sort of reconceptualize um, our trade and economic relationship with China. And I, I hope that this is a sign that Canada is sort of getting into the game in terms of these types of adjustments and rethinking. Because I you know I think it's fair to say we've been too slow in, in recent years to kind of see. Um, what's going on in, in, in other countries. Yeah, Canada certainly can't go it alone. Just the sheer size of the Chinese economy compared to ours. We don't, you know, it's not a fight. Um, we definitely need 
to rely on on our neighbors in the U.S. particularly. Um, but in terms of, I mean, we've mentioned how upholstered furniture is not, it, it's a small, small, tiny segment. And But where do you think Canada should start? Well, I think there's a, a series of, um, of strategic kind of manufacturing capacities, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's biopharma, whether it's um, artificial intelligence and other technologies that have dual purpose that both have economic uses, but also could have national security or, or military type uses. Those would be areas where, you know, I think the impetus for something like a reshoring agenda would be strongest. But I think the key here, as we sort of talked about in, in the live stream, is that it has to be a continental agenda, you know, that this is an area where, you know, Canada can't be self-sufficient in some of these areas within our own border. Um, I think the more realistic goal is to try to be self, self-sufficient on a continental basis. So with the United States and Mexico, where we're kind of working together in these core areas, um, not only would I think that make great economic sense. There's also a political opportunity here, Alicia. The, the Biden administration has been super hawkish on China. I mean, its positioning and messaging you know, resembles the, the Trump administration just without the clumsiness and the, you know, the kind of empty rhetoric, but it's, it's been tough. And I think if Canada went to the United States and said, you know, we want to partner on a continental reshoring agenda where we minimize our kind of vulnerability to Chinese imports of key strategic goods, I think the administration would support such an agenda. And I just think it's a tremendous opportunity. Take take electric vehicles, for instance. There's a lot of interest in electric vehicles right now. Well, you know, Canada is a mining country. We have a lot of minerals that are kind of crucial inputs um, to scaling an electric vehicle's domestic production capacity. Um, just, just so happens that another major source of those minerals is China. Um, and so, you know, one can't help but think that there's a, a kind of win-win here where we can bolster domestic capacity, minimize our exposure to China and do it in a way that is a kind of strategic partnership with the United States. I, I think there are various other areas in which such opportunities uh, present themselves. And that's f- a far bigger picture than, you know, what's going on in upholstered furniture as a sort of one-off. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's fair. But let's talk about the bigger picture here and and take maybe a step back. What does this mean for globalization? And free trade has been such a focus um, over the past several decades and and supply chain integration has grown so much. I mean, how do you see the impact and and the pandemic impact on globalization and the changes in the world's relationship with China going forward? Well, there's two questions there. The first on the kind of bigger picture of globalization, I think we'll see um, some retreat. We won't see a full reversal. You know, we're not going to go back to, um, you know, pre um, end of the Cold War type autarky. But I do think you'll see some retreat, a greater focus, for instance, on kind of regional arrangements, um, both in the realm of trade and also in supply chains, um, a greater focus on kind of like-minded jurisdictions partnering t- together. Um, Boris Johnson's talked, for instance, about a D10, where a group of democracies partner on um, supporting technology so we're not reliant on Huawei in the realm of 
digital infrastructure as, 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 as one example. So I, I think there will be some retreat, but not reversal. The, the question about our relationship with China, though, holy smokes, Alicia, I, I think this is such an enormous question, um, you, you know, especially with kind of renewed interest in the possibility that um, that the coronavirus came from a lab link, a lab leak in Wuhan virus. This is no longer in the realm of conspiracy theory. The Biden administration itself has requested American intelligence organizations and agencies to, to further pursue this question. If we discovered um, that the Chinese government um, intentionally covered up the origins of the coronavirus, I mean, just think about what that could possibly mean for, you know, for what is already a, a pretty kind of tenuous state uh, when it comes to the West's relationship with China. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I won't speculate now because I think that's an ongoing story, but it's a fascinating one and a crucial one for Canada when you, uh, when you think that the United States is our first largest trading partner and China is our second largest trading partner. So there's a world in which Canada is stuck but, you know, in a growing kind of geopolitical conflict between our first and second largest trading partners and one that I think Canadian governments and Canadian businesses need to be ready for, because I think we're entering a kind of period of geopolitical turbulence that we haven't seen really since um, the end of the Cold War. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Sean. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks again, Leisha. That's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website. And if you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.